Thank you for listening to the Redeemer podcast. Redeemer exists to make the gospel of Jesus known in our city, region, and world. Subscribe to the Redeemer podcast to not only access our weekly sermons, but also select special talks and lectures by myself and our guest speakers. If you want to know more about Redeemer and how you can be a part of what God is doing through our church, go to www.redeemerbible.ca. Thank you, and we hope that you're blessed by what you're about to hear. As we look at this, the series is titled Faith in the City because what you're seeing in the book of Acts is a rigorous, a rigorous intellectual but also practical case study. It's telling you exactly what you ought to be like in the church and in the world and how to do it and the obstacles you're going to face. And I find that incredibly fascinating. It's probably one of the books that we need to spend more time reading and trying to understand and wrestling with here today. So let me read Acts 1, 12 to 26. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All of these were with one accord, sorry, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer, together with all the women, and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120 and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Akeldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So, one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from from the baptism of John until the days when he was taken up from us, One of these must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. Okay, so this morning uh, at 5 a.m., I am reading, and I'm reading uh, an article um, published by Brock University. And in this article, pretty typical of modern liberal secularism, it uh, says the world is ending ecologically, there's a problem, which is, you know, that's fine. But then, well, it's not fine. If the world's ending, that's a bad thing. But <laughs> the content was there. But they said, you know, the key, if we're ever going to turn this around, or remember, these are not Christians. They said, if we're ever going to fix things, we need a change in the worldview. The world needs to see the world itself and the world differently than it is. And it offered its suggestions about the worldview we all ought to adopt to save creation. Now, I can disagree with everything they have to say as far as what that worldview is and what the crisis is. However, they are right that the worldview is vital. And if you don't know what a worldview is, a worldview, every human has one. 
We all have a way we see the world. And it's kind of like lenses. It's probably the most classic definition that we all see the world through lenses that are very unique to us. Some of us share a lot of those lenses, but they're, very, they're unique. All of us, when we look at the world, have certain assumptions about it. And the assumptions we have are really rooted in a few things. I could, and I've done this with lots of folks. We kind of go through worldview training and you decide, what, what is your worldview? And by doing that, you ask some, some basic questions to help understand, what do I actually think about the world? And when you ask those questions about where do we come from, where are we going, how do we know what is right, how do we know what is wrong, how do I, um, how do I know what my purpose in life is, these sorts of deep questions, they undergird not just what we think, but how we act. And most Canadians, you would say, you, you'd walk up to them on the street and say, what's your worldview? They would say, what? What are you talking about? Because we can't always articulate the worldview, and yet it's there. And we see it in practically speaking. So when someone is content as they're driving to throw their McDonald's container out the window and just litter, and somebody is appalled by it, that's worldview in action. Something deep down in each person says what that action is acceptable or unacceptable. There's these things that drive us, and it's not just intellectual, it's passionate as well. It's not just what we think about the world, but how we interact with it, how we see the world. We all have it. And the Christian, Christianity is a worldview. It's more than a worldview, but it's not less than a worldview. And Christianity, there's this uh, wonderful old, uh, he's passed away, missiologist, missionary to India named Leslie Newbigin. And he rightly says this. It's, it's interesting. The Christian story provides us with a set of lenses, not something to look at, but to look through. And he's spot on. It's an important distinction. We don't look at Christianity as Christians. When you look at something, it's good, but it's not enough because you'll always keep it at distance. You observe something from a distance you, when you look at it. But what Christians do is Christianity isn't something we just observe. If you do, what you become is the intellectual who never has a life change, who has a very strong seeming faith when they speak about it, but the moment something hits their life and rocks them, they struggle and they shatter and they fall. Temptation is, they, they fall into that old Oscar Wilde qu uh, quotation, I can resist anything but temptation. That's what happens when you, become, when you only look at Christianity. But instead, says Newbegin, we have to begin to see through it. That Christ and the Bible must become our lens through which we see the world. That we interpret everything that's happening first and foremost through the lens of Scripture. And this is hugely important. It's why we, we try to prioritize it here at Redeemer. And here's the challenge. If you don't accept the Christian worldview, if you don't work at maintaining it and fostering it and deepening it, you are going to adopt some worldview. You're never a neutral agent. I heard a talk with a, 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 a physicist this week from Harvard, and he has the, it's funny, such a brilliant guy to say something so dumb, that he's brilliant, and he says, but I am only governed by facts, not emotion. What? That's not true at all. He's too smart to say something so dumb. We are all governed by emotion, all of us. We all are. And reason we have to do it, we focus here, it's a tough place to be. If you're at Redeemer, you will be pushed, you will be challenged. You can come and be a passenger and just enjoy the Sunday services. But it's going to be hard because every week someone I pray will always say, you're saved by grace. And now let's out of gratitude press deeper into what we have. Let us not get to finish the race. And Christ says, well done, you trusted in my son, but you left a lot of meat on the bone. If you'd only really dug into the gospel, you could have accomplished something else. But you're saved. You're saved by faith, not by your works. And I'm, I, I, we want to be a church that presses people a little bit. 
And there's this guy named David Kinneman. He's the president of Barna, you know, the research uh, group that does all the polls. And David Kinneman, after all of his research, has this to say. I think the next generation's disconnection stems ultimately from the failure of the church to impart Christianity as a comprehensive way of understanding reality and fully living in today's culture. Our research shows that most young people lack a deep understanding of their faith. Now, the church is accountable. He's right. It's our job to continually, every week, say, Here, here's what, it's very simple. Here's what we do. Here's what I do when I talk to other pastors about preaching. Our job is a lot of things. Glorify Christ, tell you what's in the scripture. But it's also to say, here are the idols of the world, and we unmask them. And then we reveal them to be idols, and then we put Christ in their place. That's the job. And if we don't do that, if we don't inoculate you against the culture, you will get the disease of the culture. And so we have to work at it, but it's not all us. Many people don't want to be inoculated. They're quite content to absorb the culture. And so here at Redeemer, you're going to see we do a lot of this. We teach classes. We have groups. We do everything we can. We have Tuesday morning study where we're trying to press us deeper so that we begin to think and see through a Christ lens as opposed to our own lens and the cultural lens. And so this passage, why is this passage? I'm bringing this up here. This passage models Christian worldview. It models not only what it is, but how to foster it and to deepen it. And so what's happening here is this. After Christ has ascended, the apostles are left with two gaps in their company. One is Judas's. Judas is gone, now they have to fill that gap. The second one is Christ's gap. He has ascended. And that will get filled at the Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit comes. So we're going to cover that later. This passage tells us what, how the disciples went about electing and appointing a new apostle. And in that process, you see this wonderful truth. This wonderful truth of the lens that they were seeing through and how they develop that lens, how they maintain that lens, and how we can do it as well. So how do you develop a robust Christian worldview that not only sees the world, but can identify an erroneous and a fraudulent worldview and then resist it? How do we do that? And this passage shows us that to see the world through Christ's lenses, we have to be committed to Scripture, community, and prayer. And there's more to this, of course. The the book of Acts will show more, but here's what this passage shows. So let's jump into Scripture. First, Peter and the church's assumptions about what they believe about the Bible are on full display here. It's laid out very simply. Peter stands up, and the first thing he says is, in verse 16, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas. There is so much here, I could spend a long time on this verse. So listen to what he says about what Peter and the early church affirmed about what the Bible was and what it wasn't. Okay? First thing he says, well, I won't go necessarily in all order, but he says, incredibly, the Holy Spirit spoke this beforehand, and he's speaking about the Psalms that he's about to quote. So he's saying that the Bible is God's Word recorded. It is breathed by God and the Holy Spirit. It's God-authored, 100% God-authored, and yet it is filtered through the mouth of a human. And so you see what's happening. The Word of God, Scripture, which is the Bible, the Old Testament to to Peter, these words were not just suggestions to the Jews. Anyone who comes and says, oh no, the, the idea that the Bible is infallible and perfect is a creation of the Reformation. You have not read your Bible. <laughs> Dripping through Scripture is the, is the conviction that the Word of God is the very Word of God. And he says it right there, the Holy Spirit spoke this, and it's the, it's the written Word of the Psalms. So that's the first thing we see is the church has to be founded, and a Christian worldview is founded on believing the Bible to be true and not just a suggestion. So that's the first thing. Second is it's irresistible. 
when he says the scripture had to be fulfilled. What he's saying is this. Remember, the word of God in ink is just ink and paper. No one should revere a physical book. Let's be clear about that. We're not bibliophiles, as they'd call it. But instead, what he's saying is this. The word of God is powerful when it's spoken. The word of God spoken is powerful. We see that in Genesis. He speaks, it's created. Your words who have no power when people say you can speak things into existence, that's a bunch of nonsense. I'll tell you why. When I say, let there be light, I then require action to make that word happen. I have to walk over to a light switch and flick it on. God has no such need. He speaks and it is. And what Paul is saying is, God's word that is powerful is written. Now, you can't use that word for any way you want, like some kind of incantation. But what it does mean is when God says something, it cannot be resisted. It will be fulfilled. That's the way it is. He has spoken. You don't have that power. No, no, none of us have that power. But, but God does. So the word has power. That's what they believed from the beginning. Second thing is this word has to be studied and should be studied. Peter understood these things and he's about to quote the Psalms and you'd understand he didn't have a pocket Bible or one in his phone. He had these scrolls around that he had to walk around with. And Well, he didn't walk here. I don't think he walked around with them. Um, but he had access to them. Do you know the intentionality he had to take to find the scrolls, find a, play, a table where you could roll them out and write the right place and study them to the point of memorizing them with a big scroll that you can't just take home? The amount of attention that he gave to, this, to these words tells us that we are called to study them, and to apply them as well. Fourthly, the, he believed, and the church believed, and always has and should still, that the word spoken in the past has an influence and effect today. He believed these words written by David, if they were, if they were spoken by David, or written down originally by David, we're talking 1,000 BC versus 1,000 years later. So he is saying these 1,000-year-old words have relevance to Judas in his time. And so we then can look at Scripture and say, okay, yes, it's contextually not me. I'm not David. I'm not a king. All these things. But there's still a relevance for the word today. That's another conviction. And the, the last one, I mean, there's more we could say. The last one is this idea that the word of God is also the word of man. The word of God is God's perfect word, but mediated through broken, fallible authors, humans, men, generally. And that comes through incredibly. And this is where you see the beauty of Scripture. It's not just God's Word, but then when you read Lamentations, you see the anguish of Jeremiah is weeping. In Habakkuk, you see, or Habakkuk, Habakkuk, how you pronounce it, is you see the combativeness of this prophet who's having a debate with God at work, and yet it's perfect. At the end of Timothy, you see Paul's bold confidence when he's facing death in it. And you see the humanity, because what God does is he works through the vocabulary, the experiences and the wisdom, the knowledge, and the foibles of men to write down this word. And so you see that the Bible is all at once God's witness to who he is and man's amen, saying this is who we know him to be. It's both, but above all, it is God's word. Okay? So we see those things clearly being spoken. Now, if that's what they believed about Scripture, then what is more interesting to me here is how they interpreted it and how they looked through it as a lens to, to understand their world. Because when Judas betrays Jesus and then dies, uh, he doesn't say what a historian would say. See, a newspaper or a historian would say, Judas, a renegade, uh, a dis disaffected follower of this uh, prophet in Israel, uh, got disillusioned with his leadership and betrayed him to the authorities before killing himself. Facts. What Peter does, he says he looks at Scripture, and Scripture doesn't tell you what happened only, but it tells you why it happened. 
and the significance of it. And so when he looks at the scripture, he points specifically to Psalm 69, verse 25, and then Psalm 109, verse 8. And he says, these psalms written all these days, years ago said that anyone who, a man who's an enemy of God will lose everything. That's just the nature of setting yourself against God. You'll lose everything. And Judas has received exactly that. This passage speaks to him. And then it says also in Psalm 109 that when a leader has been unfaithful, David prays, let a faithful person take their place because, you, because God wants faithful leaders. And so here we have Peter reading these Psalms, and is it interesting? They decide to replace Judas, but they don't replace James in chapter 12 when he dies. And the reason they don't is because a job of an apostle is to live faithfully. The 12 apostles are held up to being uh, not a replacement, but a, carry, a new start to the 12 tribes. And the 12 tribes proved unfaithful. So the apostles are to be faithful to start this church off. So they say, well, this, we need a guy who's going to die faithfully. James dies in the faith. He doesn't need to be replaced. But Judas does. And so he is replaced. And this is important here, that if you are not committed to the Word of God as the Word of God, your faith will erode. It's just, listen, as a guy who has seen it, who has walked with individuals through it, who has seen churches fall apart, denominations fall apart, every falling apart begins with saying the age-old question, did God say? Did God really say this about gender issues? Did God really say this about, pick a, a topic? That's where it begins. And the moment you start to say, and this is more important to the, the Christian worldview, the more you start to say that the lens I look through is the culture's one, this is what, these, what happens when you move liberal. You start to say, not what does Jesus say, but you say, what does the culture say, and how do I have to change the Bible's words to adapt to what the culture is saying? And the moment you have inverted that process, that hermeneutic, if you want to use big words, that you have begun to slide away from discipleship, slide away from a Christian worldview. And so Christians stand on the truth that the Bible is exactly what it is, the Word of God. And we anchor it in that. That is the primary, that's the foundation we build on. The second thing is community. Now, the role of community in, keep, in, in not just creating, but developing a worldview, a uh, Christian worldview, is so important. You see, I see constantly the effects of men and women, especially men, because we struggle to build community, right? Men don't like to have a lot of friends in general. And when we don't have good Christian men that we can tra- talk to, men and women but as well, then what happens is, we, we, when, when something hits us, we have, no, we have no support. We have nothing to hang on to. And so deep community is important. But let's look at what, what we see here, first of all. First, think about what's happening. They have now been told to go back to Jerusalem by Jesus. And they go and they stay in the upper room. Is it the same upper room as the Last Supper? Well, no one knows. But it's big enough for 120 people. So it's a pretty giant room in the ancient world. And they go back, 120 people of mixed group, there's women there. We don't, we're not told which women. Is it the women that have been following Jesus all through the Gospels? Is it the wives of the men? We don't know, but there's women there. His mother is there, and his brothers, the same brothers who thought he was crazy in Mark 3, have probably been convinced by their resurrection that maybe he wasn't so crazy because they're there now. And so we have this diverse group. And in the darkest moments, they gather together. The church gathers together. They don't separate and say, no thanks, we have Jesus, that's all we need. I don't need to be amongst the people. They gather together. And look at the language. Look at the tenses used in this passage. In verses 23 to 26, first it says before that that they gathered together, plural. But then it says they put forward the two candidates. They prayed. They cast lots. It's not an individual 
doing this. That in the darkest moments, not only they gather together, but they decided together, they made decisions together, they worked together. There's no doubt the apostles exercised authority. They made the final decision. But in wisdom, the apostles then asked the congregation, said, let's talk about this, let's share, let's learn from one another. So there's this need to be together that is, um, because the church is actually a gift. The church comes to bear your burdens, to help you, to support you. It also comes to sharpen you because um, nothing will demand you to be patient than the church. Well, okay, marriage and kids probably are more. Those two things are the great sanctifiers that God gives us, marriage and children. But the church itself, you're here and we're going to disagree and we're here and we're constantly displaying gospel reenactment. We're laying down our interests for others. We're sacrificing our time, sacrificing our money. We're doing everything we can for one another. And so the church comes and bears our burdens when needed, but also sharpens us and it causes us to starve our selfishness, which we want to feed constantly. So look at, and look at this wonderful word as well. They're together doing all these things, but then there's this little corrective that says that they pick the candidates, but then when they pray, they say, show us who you have chosen. Isn't it interesting? They assume that God is at work in the plurality of the congregation, working for, for, for his good, for his trying to uncover what he says and, and what he is trying to accomplish. And so God is at work in the group, which is why as an eldership here at the church, and at least in my time, that's all I know, is we may disagree about things, but I've never seen an argument boil over in my three years here. Because what happens is, even, and I'm often wrong. Let's see, you know, the board will sometimes push and say, we think you missed the mark. And I accept it as best I can. The reason is, I believe God works through the plurality of leaders. I think he uses these men to sharpen me, to hold me accountable. So when I screw up, which I am very, I do a lot, I think he works through that. And so we try to, to value that. And you see it not just in these generic areas where he says, Luke says, they were together. But he uses a very specific Lucan word. There's a word he uses called homothemaiden. And this is that word, uh, let me also do a caution here. You know when it says, the, not caution, it's more of a joke. You know when um, it says they were all of one accord? Hey, Christians, stop talking about cars. Have you all heard that dumb joke? You know, there's cars they mentioned in the Bible. They were in one accord. Man, that's a cheesy joke. Christians, stop making that joke. As a guy who's a relatively new Christian compared to some of you, that's a dumb joke. So when he says one accord, it's that word, homothemaiden, and it is used 11 times in the entire New Testament, 10 of them here in Acts by Luke. So he loves this word. And what it actually means, one anger, one wrath, one passion. And the idea is that they were not just connected, but they were, they were unified by a common passion a common desire for something. And later he's going to use it in a negative sense, that the crowds are homothemaiden against the Christians to kill them. But one way or the other, he's saying there's a unity here that goes beyond their opinions, beyond their single individual preferences, and there's something that unites them. And namely, it's their fellowship and their, their common fatherhood, the father of Christ, the fatherhood in God and lordship of Christ. And so that is driving them. And so what you're seeing here is the church... That is, seeing, it's, that is living out the worldview. The worldview says the community is important and they're living it out and growing as a result. It's so, so prominent that Daryl Bach is a great scholar. Not, listen, when I say he's a great scholar, I mean he's a really meticulous scholar. You may not agree with everything he says, but he's done his homework. And he says in the book of Acts, the community is unified, praying and seeing what to do through scripture. Everything about the community's actions suggests that this is a community walking with God. And so the community reinforces and deepens the Christian worldview. 
Because I assure you, the more time you spend with non-Christians, the more you're going to adapt their worldview. And it doesn't mean you stay away from them. It simply means that you have to spend more time here and with Krishna here, but with Christians and in the Word than you do outside because you're not better than all the men and women who have fallen before you. I say it so often that when you spend time in Starbucks, you come out smelling like coffee. And when you spend time in the world, you're going to smell like the world. It's inevitable. And you come here to have anchored into you that Christian worldview that cleanses the palate and, and brings you back to the Christian worldview. So community is something you don't want to neglect. Lastly is prayer. So Christian worldview assumes, this is why it's so radical, the Christian worldview assumes you are not God. And that sounds so obvious, but no other, very few worldviews disagree with that or, or agree with that. Most worldviews, especially a dominant, secular, humanist, individualistic one of Canada, tells you that you are God. Your emotions determine, how you feel is determiner, is the determiner of what is right and wrong. You are God. It's that very famous but horrible poem, Invictus. I am captain of my, my fate. Was it? I am master of my fate. I am captain of my soul. No, you're not. Tragically, you are too often because you take control. But, it's, but this is so different because Christianity says you're not God. You're not at the center. And prayer by its very nature is the antidote to idolatry, to self-idolatry. Because what it does when you pray, prayer, and just all sorts of different kinds of prayer, but prayer is always submission. Prayer is always admitting and recognizing that it is God and not you who can do things. You're weak, he is not. Otherwise, you wouldn't pray. You would say, can I just do this myself? And so, if it's a prayer of praise, a prayer of praise is gratitude in action. It's when you realize that you have wonderful things. I hear people always saying, I'm blessed, I'm grateful. Facebook has now a thing where you can say, Carl is feeling grateful. I always wonder, if you're not a Christian, who are you grateful to? Yourself? Are you happy that McDonald's has enough staff? Like, what, I, don't, I don't know. And I want to push them sometimes, say, what are you great, who? To whom are you grateful? If you're just grateful to yourself, you're just affirming you're egocentric and you're selfish, really. So what is it? Who are we grateful to? And prayers of praise are gratitude in action, saying, I'm grateful to God, the author of all. That's what prayer is. And it's, again, it starves our selfishness. It starves our self-idolatry. Prayers of petition, when you ask for things, is a prayer of humility. It's humility in action, because you realize, I can't do it. God must do it, because I can't. Prayers of lament are weakness in action, recognizing that you can't endure all things. And prayers, I didn't put them up there, but imprecatory, it's a big word. It means prayers of justice, when you cry out and say, smash the teeth of my enemies, you know those ones? When you're asking for justice, those are prayers of justice in action. And all of them assume God is God and you are not. And so prayer is a vital part of not just reflecting, but keeping a Christian worldview, because it reminds us against the cultural tide that is always lapping at the shores of faith. It reminds us against those things that he is the creator, I am the creature, always. And so if you don't pray, make no mistake. It's not about you have to pray a certain amount of time to be blessed. We're not Muslims who think there's a, a set amount. What we say is this. If you're not praying to God, you're praying to someone. And you may say, I never pray. Not overly, but you're always thanking someone for what's going on in your life or cursing them, and it's usually you and your enemy. You're always, in some way, um, going to be uh, expecting something to help you when you need help. You'll always look to something, and you'll always worship something thereby. And that's just why prayer is a vital part of maintaining a Christian worldview. If you're not in the Word, 
if you're not in community and you're not praying, you still may be saved, but you're going to be struggling. And, and I, listen, I've seen too many people have their faith just revealed to be a shell in time. And it's happening all the time, even here at Redeemer. And so that's, my, that's part of that. Now here's where I will close. This is important. Prayer is so important in the book of Acts that it is 31 different times people are referred to as praying in a large group usually. 31 times. 21 of 28 chapters have prayer in them. It's so common throughout that another scholar, David Peterson, says it's striking that at almost every important turning point in the narrative of God's redemption, redemptive action in Acts, we find a mention of prayer. They're always praying. They pray when they are uh, serving. They pray when they are waiting. They pray when they are preparing for mission. They pray when they are suffering, dying, lamenting, rejoicing. It's prayer everywhere in the book of Acts. It's what they did. But here's the great challenge I always have. How do we become this people? It's always a thing. See, and I say this regularly. If I end every sermon, any sermon, by saying, be more like the early church, I am not a good pastor to you. Because if I do that, what I am saying is try harder. And of course, you're going to say, I can't do any better. I can't try any harder. I've tried and I still can't wake up. I still can't pray regularly. I still don't find the Bible interesting. I can't do it. So if all I do is say, be like the early church, I will heap law on you and I'll make you feel miserable when you fail. So instead what we do is we say, well, how, do we, how, does, how does this passage show us how we can actually be this sort of people? How did the church do it? Was it just because they're stronger willpower? than modern Niagara folks? Well, no, there's something else happening. And the answer is found when we read in the very last verse. The very last part of the verse says, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. You think, what is that? Think what's happening here. There's just been an election where two different men are set forward for one position. And argue, un undoubtedly, there was some people in that row 120 who wanted Matthias and some people who wanted Joseph. Right? There was people who there would have been. They then cast lots, which we, you know we no longer cast lots. You know why? Because the Holy Spirit comes, and there's never a mention of them casting lots after this, because the Spirit now becomes our aid in that regard. But nobody debates. After they let the lots fall to Matthias, we hear nothing about division. There's not a call for a recount. They don't split the church and start one with Joseph as an elder. Instead, they somehow miraculously are at peace with it. They trust God over their own emotions, over their own opinions. There's no campaigning required. That's it. Now, how do they do it? And the reason, the answer is beautifully found when they, sit, when they pray. And they open up this prayer, Peter does, by saying, you, you, Lord, who knows the hearts of all. Now, my head as a guy who knows Greek is like falling here. When they say this, there's a word that he uses called, and we'll put it up, cardiognostis. Now, cardiognosis, what it means is that if you split the word in two, because it's a compound word, it's cardio, cardia, which means heart, gnosis, which means knowledge or knower. So they're saying, you, God, are the heart knower. You know what's in the heart. So how can they, as people, accept things that they may not agree with and trust and not break faith and not bicker and not banter, but instead become a unified church committed to the word, committed to prayer and community? The reason is because of the heart knower. Now, I'm going to get more into that in one second, but let me now use an example from something. There's this movie, I'd call it a wonderful movie, but I don't think it was very good. Um, I don't think it was very popular either, called The Fisher King with Robin Williams in the 90s. Now, in this movie, um, I can't say the whole thing, but here's what's going on. Robin Williams was, a, and I think he was an English teacher, 
but he's now had some mental health issues. So he lives on the street. He's homeless. And he meets Jeff Bridges, who's a down-on-his-luck radio DJ. Long story. But Robin Williams' character named Perry, he is watching. He falls in love with a woman named Lydia. And he falls in love with her from afar. As a homeless guy, he sees her coming out of her, her, her workplace and getting lunch. And he just falls in love with her and he watches her. It's kind of, it sounds creepy, I know. <laughs> but he watches her and he falls in love with her. And eventually, he ends up confronting her and, and expressing his love. And now listen to what he says. I'm in love with you. And not just from tonight. I've known, I've known you for a long time. I know that you come out from work and fight your way out that door. You get pushed back in, and then you come back out. I walk with you to lunch. It's a good day if you stop and get that romance novel at the store. I know on Wednesdays you go to that dim sum parlor, and I know that you get a jawbreaker before you go back into work, and I know that you hate your job, and you don't have many friends. Sometimes you feel uncoordinated, and you, feel, you don't feel as wonderful as everybody else. Feeling as alone and separate as you feel you are, I love you. I love you, and I think you're the greatest thing since Spice Racks. Robin Williams. I'd be knocked out if I could just have that first kiss, and I won't be distant. I'll come back in the morning. I'll call you if you will let me. And her response to that is, you're real, aren't you? And the reason she's broken by the speech is this. She knows she's not lovable. She knows how she feels. She knows she feels insecure about her life and her body. She's a little mousy kind of character. She feels so alone so if anyone knew her, they couldn't love her, she assumes. So when somebody comes and says, I know everything, I'm your heart knower. I know everything, I know every struggle you have, and I love you. To that core, to that bottom, she's broken by. She can't even believe it's real. And the reason the disciples in the church and every Christian since can trust God in the face of every evidence that he is not real, that he doesn't love them, is because he knows he is the cardionosis, he is the heart knower. Because he knows those things you'll never show people, even your own spouses. That insecurity, that brokenness, you feel that nothing, no one could possibly love me. Maybe someone's made you feel that way. That's what life is. We, we're not good to people. Christ comes and says, I know everything about you and I still was willing to die for you. And that, when they realize that, of course you're going to be different. Of course when you know you're loved like that, you're going to want to be around him more and his word. You want to get to know this person who loves you in spite of you. You're going to want to be around people who know him because they help you see him better. And you're going to want to pray to him because you want to get to know him more and welcome him into your life more. But if you don't have the gospel, if you don't first and foremost want or understand that he is your Lord, not culture, nothing else, then you're not going to ever be changed permanently. You're going to have wonderful spurts. You may come to the church and flare up for a moment and then it's going to fall away. Because if what is driving you isn't the love of the heart knower of Christ, something else will drive you. Something else will become more beautiful to you than him. It could be something you see on TV. It could be your money. It could be your career. It could be porn. It could be your children. Whatever it is. But the heart knower is everything. Christians, what are you waiting for? What are you, are you tired as a Christian? I, was, I remember this as an early believer. I used to always think, how come everybody else seems like they know him better than I do? How come everybody else seems to be able to just jump into their Bible and I can't? How come everybody else seems to hear from him and I don't? I'm not suggesting you're going to come and you're going to hear voices in your head if you start reading your Bible. But you're going to encounter God. And so what are you waiting for? You have the guy, who, God, who loves you. You're the heart knower. Jump in. Get to know him. Jump into community groups and build deep community here. Pray as regularly as you can. Join the prayer meetings. Skeptics. 
If you have no Jesus, here's the interesting thing. You're going to still have the same anxiety. You're still going to feel insecure. You're still going to think you're not acceptable to the world, but you'll have nowhere to lay that burden. And what will happen is you'll think someone else is your heart knower, something else is. So you'll drown in, in, you'll seek something else to be the heart knower. And so you'll go and you'll find pornography, which is what men sadly do far too often. You'll find other women. You'll find friends. You'll find alcohol. You'll find whatever it is as men. As women, you find your work. You find your kids. You find your uh, anything, your reputation. And you say, this is what's going to finally relieve me of my anxiety. If I just become this kind of a mother, then I won't feel anxious. Then I'll feel I have value. And every time you do that, you're going to be let down. Except the only one who knows you better than you know yourself and still loves you. It's Christ alone. Let's pray. Thank you.